guys, this is Jim. Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. I'll be your host for the next 40 minutes or so. I have five stories that I want to go to today. Three are Michigan-based, and one is a world story, and one is about America, and it's more of a commentary. So um, the first couple are going to have not a whole lot of comments about them, but the Detroit Free Press is reporting, or it came out just a couple of days ago, that Governor Whitmer is expected to okay the reopening of gyms and movie theaters. This is an article by Paul Egan. It says, fitness centers, theaters, bowling alleys, ice rinks, and related facilities ordered closed for more than five months during the coronavirus pandemic are expected to get the okay this week from Governor Whitmer to reopen after the Labor Day holiday. An announcement could come very soon, the free press has learned. Though a situation remains fluid and is subject to change based on factors such as the sudden spike in case numbers, the governor is expected this week to finally give a green light for the businesses and facilities to reopen, subject to social distancing and sanitation safety protocols and new requirements intended to facilitate contact tracing and the event of an infection, according to one person with close knowledge of discussion. Most of the affected facilities have been ordered closed since March 21st in South and Central Michigan, but have been able to open in the Upper Peninsula and Northern Lower Peninsula since June 10th. Furthermore, in gyms and fitness centers, face coverings are expected to be required for employees, and when six feet of distance cannot be maintained, and for customers when arriving and leaving and about the gym. It was not clear whether customers would be required to wear face masks while exercising, which some gyms around the U.S. have required during the pandemic and others have not. Whitmer's existing executive order requires face masks in enclosed public spaces, but also provided an exemption from wearing a mask while exercising if the mask would interfere with the activity. Um, For movie theaters, Reopening plans in other states have ranged from allowing 25% capacity to near full capacity, with some states placing caps on the maximum number of people allowed, regardless of capacity. Also expected to get approval this week to reopen our arcades, indoor mini-golf facilities, and entertainment venues related to a relatively new form of recreation. Axe-throwing, according to the source. Hmm, that's interesting. Prospects are less certain for convention centers wanting to hold indoor meetings with more than 10 people in larger outdoor facilities, such as minor league baseball parks and concert venues. Um, Then they they go on. If you want to read the article, you can. By this time, by the time you see this, it might be old news um, because it might have already been announced. But anyway, that's that's interesting. And that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, this one is from The Hill. It's a Washington uh, online newspaper that, uh, well, it used to be, it was, it's called The Hill because it used to really cover stuff going on on Capitol Hill, but lately they've been talking about a lot of other issues. This one says that Michigan denies a hack after public voter information is found on a Russian online forum. This is by Zach Budrick. 
and it came out on the 1st of September. Um, Michigan's Department of State denied on Tuesday it had been the victim of a data breach after voter information surfaced on a Russian hacker's platform. Public voter information in Michigan and elsewhere is accessible to anyone through a Freedom of Information Act request, the department said in a statement. Our system has not been hacked. We encourage all Michigan voters to be wary of attempts to hack their minds, however, by questioning the sources of information and advertisements they encounter in seeking out trusted sources, including their local election clerk and our office, the state agency added. If voters suspect misinformation, they should report it to misinformation at michigan.gov. Um, the department issued a statement in response to a post on Twitter from GQ correspondent Julia Loft, who tweeted a link to the Russian newspaper Kommersant. Russian journalists have discovered data from Michigan voter data rolls, including the personal info of 7.6 million Michigan voters on a Russian hacker's platform. It also includes voter info from other swing states, including Florida and North Carolina. In a follow-up tweet, she noted that while the information was publicly available, it's just unclear what these hackers are using it for, other than scamming the State Department. A bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report last year indicated Russian intelligence targeted election infrastructure in all 50 states to some extent in 2016. Michigan is a crucial battleground state for November. President Trump won the state by just under 11,000 votes four years ago. The 538 average of polls indicate Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden holds a seven percentage point lead in the state. Uh, those last two um, paragraphs, I don't know. This, um, I mean, I suppose the Russians might have targeted election infrastructure, but I really don't like the whole Russia hack the election narrative because it's not really true. Even if they did try to sway the election, um, they had no say over the votes. So I don't know why it's made such a big deal about. Um, and the second one, uh, 538, is that Nate Silver. He, he's, he's largely a Democrat. And he totally miscalculated the election four years ago. So I don't know why he's even used as a source anymore. So we really don't know. I mean, they say he has a, Biden holds a 7% percentage point lead in the state. I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I don't have the money and the resources to combat that. But I'm just telling you, and I'm not just basing this on the people I talk to, but uh, the feeling on the ground is that it's much closer, that it could probably go either way at this point. I don't think there's a uh, seven-point lead. Um, you can also tell, another way you can tell is, and this is, a, this is an imperfect kind of polling, is look at the Senate race and the polls in the Senate race, and they show a very tight race between John James and Gary Peters. And um, as I've said before, I don't know if I've said it here, that you're not really going to have people cross over in this election because people are so divided about whether they support Trump or not. You're not going to have people who, who vote for Donald Trump and then vote for Gary Peters in the Senate and vice versa. You're not going to have people who vote for 
you know, of Joe Biden and then cross over and vote for John James. So that gives you a much better indication since they are very, very close. The Gary, the Peters and James Senate polls that would tell you that the presidential polls that they're showing with Biden having a large lead are not accurate. Now, Election Day, it might turn out differently. I mean, I don't think so. I think it'll be a very close race, but, you know, it is possible at the last minute people will confirm their votes. They might be kind of wishy-washy or whatever right now, and you might end up with a suppression, like maybe Detroit or something just doesn't come out to vote or something, and you could end up with a, a, a sizable win, but if everybody who is registered to vote votes, I think it'll be a very, very close race, or I should say closer than polls are predicting right now. And so I get that based on the following I'm doing on Twitter and Facebook and and not really like it's not like polling people from my church and things like that, where they're obviously going to be more in favor of the Republican. Um, you know, it's just it's just based on what I'm seeing on the ground and what I'm seeing online and the polls in the Senate race, which are. Are, are done locally, it's done statewide. These national polls, um, they're not getting a good representation of the entire state. And so you're seeing in the national, or you're seeing all these polls which show that Joe Biden has a large lead in Michigan, but then you see the Senate polls, which are very, very close. So um, I think it's going to be a very, very close election, at least much closer than people are predicting. I think that nationwide, I don't, I don't, think this is going, you know, and I could be wrong. I was wrong four years ago, but I really think that the election is going to be much closer nationwide. I think it's going to be decided more than likely in the Electoral College, and I think it'll come down to just a couple of states. Um, I don't think both sides are predicting a landslide. I've seen on Twitter Republicans saying that Trump is going to win all 50 states, which I don't know where they get that from. Um, I think it's just an enthusiasm kind of thing to get people to come out and vote, but that's not going to happen. You know, they're claiming it's going to be a Trump landslide. And then I have the Democrats who are also claiming that nobody's going to vote for Trump, that, you know, he's just dead in the water and the election's going to be a landslide for the Democrats. <clears throat> um, I don't think it's going to be a landslide either way, but we'll see what happens. Um, I really think it'll be much, much closer than is being predicted. <clears throat> the other story here is uh, from MLive. Um, let's see, I don't... Oh, by Laura, Lauren Gibbons. It says, Michigan, a Michigan lawmaker wants to scrap license plate tabs to shorten lines at the Secretary of State office. Uh, a Republican lawmaker is suggesting Michigan should do away with physical vehicle plate tabs to save money and shorten wait times at the Secretary of State offices. But state police are concerned the move would make it harder to determine whether a driver's registration is up to date on the road. If signed into law, legislation sponsored by State Representative Matt Maddock, a Republican from Milford Township, would remove the requirement that drivers place a sticker tab on their license plate each year to signify registration. Drivers would also no longer have to carry a paper or electronic copy of the registration registration certificate in their vehicle to show law enforcement if pulled over. 
police officers would be required to search the driver's information on the law enforcement information network instead. The bill would require Secretary of State and the Department of Natural Resources to workshop different ways for people. Um, uh, looks like the sentence got cut off because it's for people too when there's no period and I don't know. Um, in testimony to the House Transportation Committee Tuesday, Maddox said nearly 60% of people heading to the Secretary of State in person are there to get tabs, meaning removing the requirement entirely could sharply reduce lines. He said his bill, House Bill 5250, would also save the state money, noting the tremendous cost of printing out and mailing tabs. The Department of State estimates removing the cost of processing and mailing vehicle tabs could equate to about $500,000, according to a report from the nonpartisan House Fiscal Agency. We have an opportunity here to solve a lot of problems for people and put a bunch of smiles on about 7 million drivers' faces, he said. But putting the onus on officers to find a driver's proof of registration could prove difficult for some law enforcement agencies, not all of whom have the technology or connectivity needed to run that information on the road. Michigan State Police Sergeant Nicole McGee, a legislative liaison with the agency, told lawmakers Tuesday that some agencies don't have in-car computers through which to look up driver's information or have experienced a lot of issues with connectivity in police vehicles. Having that certificate is really a good asset to have when trying to determine the validity of the plate, she said. Not having tabs to check on cars could also pose problems, as police don't have a way to run plates without inputting them manually into the computer, she said. The committee also heard testimony on another MATIC proposal, House Bill 5171, that would allow accredited banks and credit unions to be allowed to provide Secretary of State services. The Secretary of State would determine requirements for participation and whether financial institutions that applied were eligible under the bill, and a financial institution could charge an additional fee for providing the service. The Department of State opposes the bill, spokesman Matt Levin said, because the legislation would mandate the department create a costly, complicated program that might not even be convenient for consumers, as a lot of online banking is already done online. Representative Tanisha Yancey, a Democrat from Harper Woods, also questioned why there wasn't a cap on what fees financial institutions could charge if they opted into providing Secretary of State services. Both bills would have to be passed by the House and Senate and signed by the governor to become law. They currently remain before the House Transportation Committee. It's very interesting. I'm curious as to what you guys think. I I can see both sides of the issue, but I do like the idea of um, uh, of making lines shorter, of, of uh, really bringing our state into the 21st century with technology. And, you know, uh, I do know it would make it a little bit harder on police, but, you know, there's ways you can compensate for that. I mean, and the other thing uh, about letting drivers renew their license at, at banks and credit unions, um, I don't have anything against that in theory. I don't know necessarily. I mean, yeah, you'd want to have some kind of caps on it so they're not charging an exorbitant amount in fees, but it would also take uh, it would also relieve some of the Secretary of State offices. You know, one of the problems we have is obviously the lines are too long, and I've always said, well, you know, they need to hire more people then, you know, because 
they only have like three or four people in there at a time working and you got lines out the door. Well, this would save us money by not having to hire more workers. Plus, I mean, they did that and they probably still do it in small towns, but they used to do it uh, in Western towns and even in early America, they, I mean, uh, early 20th century where, you know, the town grocery store would also be the post office and, you know, you could get, you know, your fishing license there and you could get all kinds of different licenses, you know, um, so it kind of is a return back to very limited, smaller services. We could, you know, so offhand, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, obviously, it's got a long way to go. It'd have to be passed and, and um, through both houses and have to go to the governor. So the, the finished product would, you'd have to look at. But offhand, I don't have, a, I don't see a problem with it. And I'd be curious what you guys think. I, um, I kind of like the idea, but um, I'm not real well versed. So, um, the other story I want to go to real quick is actual world story, and then I'll come back to the one because it's a little more of commentary, and it might uh, we might want to go back to that one, or we might want to talk about that one a little bit. This one <clears throat> is out of uh, Israel, and it's a story that could have long-lasting impact. Um, Hamas says a deal reached to calm violence with Israel. This is from Gaza City in the Gaza Strip. It's from the Associated Press. Gaza's Hamas rulers said Monday they have reached an agreement through international mediators to end the latest round of cross-border violence with Israel. Under the deal, Hamas is to halt the launches of explosives, explosives-laden balloons and rocket fire into Israel while Israel said it will ease a blockade that has been tightened in recent weeks. The Israeli restrictions have worsened living conditions in Gaza at a time when it is coping with the new coronavirus outbreak. As a result of indirect mediation efforts led by Egypt, the United Nations, and Qatar, Hamas said several projects will be announced to serve our people in Gaza Strip and contribute in mitigating difficult living conditions. Its statement didn't detail any of the projects, but it said conditions were returned to what they were before the escalation. Under previous unofficial understandings reached through intermediaries, Hamas has sought a broader easing of restrictions on movement, increased power supplies from Israel, and large-scale economic projects to help lower unemployment hovering around 50%. It accuses Israel of moving too slowly or not honoring its commitments. Uh, COGAT, uh, it's an acronym, C-O-G-A-T. I don't know what it stands for. Um, in Israel, an Israeli defense body responsible for Palestinian civil, civilian affairs announced late Monday that it would immediately reopen Gaza's only cargo crossing and resume fuel shipments into the territory. It also said it would reopen a 15-mile fishing zone off Gaza's coast. This decision will be tested on the ground, if Hamas, which is accountable for all actions that are taken in the Gaza Strip, fails to stand fails to stand its obligations, Israel will act accordingly, it said. The UN envoy to the region, Nikolay Mladonov, welcomed the agreement, ending the launching of incendiary devices and projectiles, restoring electricity, will allow the UN to focus on dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, he tweeted. 
Israel and Hamas are bitter enemies that have fought three wars and numerous excursions since the Islamic militant group seized control of Gaza in 2007. Israel and Egypt have maintained a blockade of Gaza since the Hamas takeover, saying that restrictions are needed to prevent, to prevent Hamas from arming. In recent weeks, pro-Hamas groups have launched scores of incendiary balloons torching wide tracts of Israeli farmland. Militant groups have also fired several barrages of rockets into Israel. Israel has responded with tank fire and airstrikes on military targets, while closing Gaza's only cargo crossing, cutting off fuel supplies to the territory's only power plant, and halting access to fishing waters. Residents had been left with just four hours' electricity a day during the sweltering summer. Last week's detection of the first cases of locally transmitted coronavirus in Gaza has worsened the situation, with Hamas imposing a week-long renewable lockdown. Years of blockade, conflicts with Israel, and intra-Palestinian political feuds have left Gaza's health care system overwhelmed and under-resourced. The World Health Organization has warned Gaza cannot handle a major virus outbreak. Well, the outbreak part is not good, but I'm happy to hear this. Hamas and Israel have been fighting this three wars since 2007, but I remember even being a kid, there was a lot of problems with Hamas and Israel. So I'm not really sure when it started, but it's gone on for a long time, way too long. And they're both just being nasty to each other. I mean, just really harming each other and just finding the worst possible ways to hurt the other side. So I welcome this. It'll be wonderful if we can get some peace in the Middle East. I don't know what all it's going to take to do that, but but this is a good first step. Glad to see it. All right, and this one is also from the AP. It's from uh, a, a woman named Lisa Marie Payne. And it says, Americans are divided over armed civilians who flock to protests. And this is quite an interesting uh, phenomenon and something worth talking about here. Uh, the article starts in Boise, Idaho. It says, the scenes have become commonplace in 2020. People gathering at state capitals with semi-automatic long guns strapped across their chests. A couple near St. Louis emerging from their mansion brandishing firearms as Black Lives Matter demonstrators marched by the house. Men roaming the streets with rifles during protests over racial inequality punctuated by two people being killed in Wisconsin and another in Oregon over the weekend. The coronavirus pandemic, protests against racism and police killings, a rancorous election, and some people's perception that cities are being overrun by violent mobs have brought about a markedly more aggressive stance by some gun owners and widened the divide over firearms in the U.S. Americans are turning out more often and more visibly with guns, a sign of the tension engulfing the country. Last week's arrest of a 17-year-old accused of killing two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, with a semi-automatic rifle, is just the latest flashpoint. Over the weekend, Supporters of President Donald Trump steamed in, streamed into Portland, Oregon, resulting in a clash with protesters that ended with the supporter of a right-wing group fatally shot. 
The white teenager and other gun-toting protesters have been denounced as radical vigilantes who benefit from a double standard, that if they were black gun owners brandishing their firearms, the police would use deadly force against them. To others, they are patriots seeking to bring law and order to cities that have been overtaken by extremists. I would have done the same thing, to be honest with you, Todd Scott of Covington, Georgia said, of the teenager in Kenosha. He's viewed video of the teen, Kyle Rittenhouse, being chased by protesters and believes he was acting in self-defense. Scott himself once used his gun to break up violence, becoming a bit of a local hero in 2015 after a gunman killed a clerk and a customer at a local liquor store where he was picking up beer. Scott fired on the suspect before he fled. Kat Ellsworth, who heads the Liberal Gun Club chapter in Illinois and lives in Chicago, is appalled by those who have converged on protests and are openly carrying firearms. She believes those gun owners, gun owners have been emboldened by Trump, who has made law and order a central part of his re-election bid. The scenes of primarily white men openly carrying firearms on city streets or of those who have flocked to state capitals to protest pandemic business restrictions are a demonstration, she believes, of white privilege. She's convinced that a group of black gun owners with AR-15s in public would be dealt with much differently. I view them as instigators, and I view them as people looking for an excuse to shoot people of color, said Ellsworth, who is white. The killings in Kenosha almost immediately opened a new front in the culture wars over guns. Fox News' Tucker Carlson called the episode a result of authorities refusing to bring law and order to the city. How shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would, Carlson said. Around the same time last week, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, who were seen outside their St. Louis home in June brandishing a rifle and a handgun, were given a coveted primetime slot at the Republican National Convention, where they defended their right to bear arms. In the first half of this year, the turmoil has fueled unprecedented buying of firearms. Every month so far has smashed last year's number on background checks. In a few instances, the number of background checks have soared past previous records, set by a background check system that began in 1998. So far this year, nearly 23 million background checks have been conducted, though not all checks were for firearm purchases. Still, the gun lobby, or the gun industry, I'm sorry, estimates that 40% of firearm purchases have been made by first-time buyers, or about 5 million people. Ed Turner, a former police officer from Metro Atlanta, who now owns gun shops in Georgia, said he cringes seeing people openly carrying firearms. If someone is truly worried about their own safety, he said, concealing the weapon is a much better approach than walking around like John Wayne. Among the people flocking to his gun shops, he has seen mostly women, African Americans, and Latinos concerned about the personal safety and buying a firearm for the first time. He considers their concerns justified amid calls to defund the police and protests that, amount, that sometimes result in police stations being attacked. I am stunned that the behavior is allowed to go on, he said. Gun control activists have viewed the situation in Kenosha, as well as the other protests that have drawn people openly carrying firearms, as a direct result of Trump's firebrand rhetoric. 
It is because of an extreme worldview that has only been encouraged at the highest levels of government and by the gun lobby that has condoned their presence there, said Nick Saplina, Managing Director of Law and Policy at Every Town for Gun Safety. The presence of armed militia at these protests are not there merely to protect property, but there to intimidate protesters to chill speech and sometimes worse. So, that is an interesting article, which opens up big debate, debate that we can discuss for a few minutes here. This issue is dividing America. There are there are so many there are so many um, parts of this. There's the riots, obviously. Of course, there also is the uh, alleged police brutality. I mean, you know that plays a part in it. The media plays a part in it. You know, are they giving you the full story? Are they, you know, are they? Manipulating the people into thinking that something happened that didn't, as we saw in Covington, we saw in um, other cases where when the full story comes out, you find out there was more to the story than, you know, at first, at first blush. But by then it's too late. You know, it's like the genie's out of the bottle, as they say, or you've opened Pandora's box. You can't you can't bring the violence back in once you have people protesting and rioting over what they perceive as being police brutality. And then you come out later and be like, oh, sorry, there's actually more to the story. I mean, how do you how do you recover that? I mean, how do you take that back? How do you undo the damage is, I guess, my point. So there's the media aspect of it. Um, there is the possibility, I'm saying, that of retraining police, that that is a part, part of it. You know, um, you also have the cities refusing to... Uh, keep law and order in their city. I mean, it's, at some point they can't. At some point they can't. I mean, you know, if it gets out of control, it's more than the police can handle. You need to bring in the National Guard or, you know, so, but in the beginning, they're not, they're not doing anything to stop it until it gets to a point where it's, it's unstoppable. I mean, from their, it's unstoppable from their perspective. They can't do anything at that point. They've got to bring in outside groups to help. There's also whether, you know, words matter, you know, whether we have too much rancor and rhetoric going on right now in, in politics, you know, um, that's a question as to whether that emboldens anybody, uh, you know, uh, just off the top of my head, I will say that I don't think that does I mean it, it certainly doesn't help some of the rancor and rhetoric. I don't like a lot of it, but you have to remember that during President Obama's term, he was a very eloquent speaker. He was uh, very good, and he was empathetic, and he would hold hands with victims, and you know, and even after Sandy Hook, he didn't cry, but he wiped away tears out of his eyes. That, was made a big deal. But remember in Ferguson, the city burned. So you can't all be blamed on rhetoric and, you know, and say that, well, Trump's, Trump's igniting this because of, because he refuses to show compassion and he's just got this rhetoric. 
because it happened even before Trump came. Again, you also have questions about gun ownership and whether, and the double standard. And I don't know. It, there, there could be a double standard. I don't know. I don't know. I try to imagine, I try to remember black power, you know, if militants, blacks, like the black power movement and the, uh, like, I can't remember all of them, but, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, they were very militant black people. And I try to wonder what would happen in Grand Haven if you saw a number of black men marching down the street with automatic weapons, if people would say, oh, they're just exercising their Second Amendment rights, or would we feel like we were under siege? Would we want the police and other people to disarm them, get them off the streets? You know, um, it's a tough one. Uh, I don't know. It, it's, it's one of those things that we try to imagine it, I don't know if we'd get it right, and probably our own prejudices would would color our imagination. If we are pro-gun, we probably would say no. Nobody would have a problem if black men had weapons. And if we're anti-gun, we'd say, of course, there'd be a problem. They'd probably all be killed. They'd probably send in the military to, to protect Grand Haven from, from these people. There are just many, many facets to this that... Um, it's hard to it's hard to boil it down to what is the issue here um, but there's no doubt in my mind that first of all we know that many of these instigators are not from that area and I'm not talking about like this Kyle Rettenhouse I'm not talking about him when I say instigators I'm talking about the looters and the rioters are not, they're not destroying their own cities. That, that much we know. We, we know this from reporting from uh, the police when they make arrests. They know where these people are from. They know their home addresses, that they're not from around there. We also know that the media is inciting violence. Uh, and trying to gaslight the people with, like, CNN's banner, which got a, a ton of uh, ridicule and hate, and deservedly so, for having a reporter standing outside of a burning building and saying that these are mostly peaceful protests, when, by, their, by your own eyes, you can see that this is violent and it's arson, you also, so there's no doubt of that, that they are, they are not waiting until all the facts have been, uh, have been established um, before they rush with a narrative. Partly out of a hatred for the Republicans, but on a less nefarious way, but many of them want to be the first one to report a story, too. 
So it's it kind of serves both purposes. I mean, you don't want to wait around for a couple of days to tell the whole story while everybody else is rushing out and talking about it. You know, they're all talking about, you know, a police officer shot, a white police officer shot a black man in the back. And they're talking about, you know, how the tulips are growing in Holland. You know, they don't want that, even though they might say, look, we don't want to rush to judgment and come out with the story until we have all the facts. But when everybody else is reporting it and you're not, it makes it look like you're not doing your job, you know, that you're you're focused on other things and you don't care about what's happening on the streets. So, you know, I, I understand why they want to be right out there reporting it as soon as everybody else does, maybe before they're reporting it. And so they don't want to wait around if somebody gives them a clip of footage and says, this just happened in Wisconsin. They want to run with it, put it on the air. And then a couple of days later, they may find out that, oh, wait, that wasn't the whole clip. You know, once you get the whole clip, you see that the story is very different. That is a mistake with our 24-hour news system um, and our corporate news. When news has sponsors, you know, with commercials and things, they have to keep their shareholders happy. They have to make sure they have enough viewers. And so you so you have to run with the most explosive stories, things that will make people want to tune into their news story and their news station. And if their news station is always slow on all the stories, then then stocks are going to fall. And then the stock market, the stockholders are either going to sell or they're going to make, get you fired. So I understand that's a problem, but it also is an effect to create a narrative that, you know, white people are racist all this stuff. So that's a definite problem and downplaying it and the Democrats are downplaying it. And if the Democrats lose in November, this will be the main reason why, because they are refusing to call out the violence. Probably, and this is just my opinion, uh, they refuse to call out the violence because they don't want to annoy their base. They're afraid that if they call out the violence, it'll be perceived that they are giving a pass to the anger that the, that the that um, blacks and minorities feel. That they don't care that uh, a police officer killed a black man, or they don't care about white supremacy, or they don't care about suppression, or any of these kind of things that there's that fear that if they come out against that, then they'll be seen as just another politician who doesn't care about the needs on the street. I, I understand the problem that they're having. And they certainly don't want to agree with Trump in the narrative, you know, that we need more law and order because that plays right into um, a Republican talking point for a long time but certainly Donald Trump. So, but if they lose, that'll be the major reason because they refuse to step out and condemn the violence. And and we know Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin, I don't have it in front of me, um, but if I'll find it, if you write me, I can, I can source it. Governor Evers of, of Wisconsin was contacted contacted by the Trump administration and asked what they could do to help. Can they bring in the National Guard? Can they bring in troops? Can they do anything to help bring order 
to this city, and Governor Evers said, no, we don't want your help. And then the city burned. And now Governor Evers is saying, is blaming the Trump administration for not doing enough. You know, and then Trump visits Kenosha and, you know, and that was Tony Evers' complaint that I will not meet with him because he didn't do anything as our cities burned. He was too busy, you know, throwing gasoline on the fire, as they say, you know, trying to make things worse. Well, that's an absolute lie. And this is the problem that they're going to have in November is the fact that they are giving into these protests. And it sure seems as if, just on first blush, it appears that they're giving into these in an attempt to let America burn so that we'll vote Donald Trump out of office, is what it appears to me is the point. They are willing to sacrifice their cities and towns in order to make things as bad as possible, uh, which then just brings up, makes you question, what other lies are they telling you about the coronavirus or about the economy or anything like that? You don't know if those are just attempts also to make things so horrible in Trump's America that we say, we don't want him any longer, get him out of there, put somebody else in. Um, and this isn't a conspiracy theory. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everything is a lie. I'm saying just based on what we've seen already with these, it makes you question the other things like about the pandemic and other things. You have to wonder if they're willing to lie about one thing in order to make American lives miserable. What else are they doing? You know, what else are they reporting? Are they purposely keeping the lockdown going so the economy will crash under Trump? Are they purposely exaggerating the COVID numbers so it looks like that there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of, of uh, deaths on Trump's watch? Um, I'm not going to give you the answer to that. That's something you're going to have to decide for yourself, but it, it, it raises the question, if they're willing to let cities burn, what else are they willing to do? to get rid of who they view is unfit for office. Get rid of a, a man who they view is unfit for office. Um, and of course, they're going to feel they're the patriots destroying a tyrant. So they're not, they don't feel guilty about it. They don't feel like, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're being horrible. They're thinking, we're saving America. You know, we let some cities burn to save America. We let, you know, we lie to save America. Um, so certainly in their own mind, they're not bad people. They're doing what needs to be done to get rid of a tyrant or a despot or whatever. So, yeah, the, the it, it, it's just unfortunate. It is unfortunate that people feel they have to do this, that they have to come there like Kyle Rittenhouse or whatever his name was, um, Rittenhouse, they have to come there and keep law and order because the police can't at this point and the uh, mayors and governors are refusing to allow the president to declare not martial law but to declare the insurrection act now now of course well let me let me let me rephrase that now 
because now we hit another problem. I, I, I said that they refused to allow Trump to declare the Insurrection Act. That is not true. They refused to allow Trump to come in there and take care of it. Now, the problem I have with Donald Trump is that he doesn't need their permission to invoke the Insurrection Act, is, is the other point. So I'm not giving Donald Trump a full uh, pardon here because at any time he could say there's an insurrection going on in our cities. I'm invoking this act. And I'm going to send in the military to quell the, the, the danger and bring law and order there. So what? So they're both the fault. The Democrats are not accepting help from Trump. But at any time, as he said four years ago in his announcement speech, I alone can do it. Well, he can alone do this. All he has to do is declare an insurrection, which this is, and quell it with the military. And he's not doing that. So they're both to blame. I would say more blame is on the Democrats for allowing it to get to this point and then not and then forcing uh, the president to basically have to declare martial law, uh, which I guess they feel either won't do or they feel if he does that, then they'll have good images of the president sending in troops um, uh, to arrest black people. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's what they're looking at, that they kind of put him in a corner where no matter what he does, if he lets it burn, he's to blame. If he if he sends in federal troops, it looks like, you know, he's invading American cities um, to protect racists and white supremacists, I guess, is their, their thinking. But I don't think the American people would be angry if Trump uh, declared an insurrection and came in there. I think the people would applaud it. I think that's where the Democrats are miscalculating. But they're both to blame. But I would, if I had to pick who's to blame more, it would be the Democrats because Trump has made an effort to help. But they are not, they're not accepting it. But um, I'm not sure if Trump is making a political calculation here, if he thinks it would be best for him politically to let these cities burn and uh, so that, he can run against, he can run on law and order and win. I don't know if it's a political calculation or if he's just hesitant about invoking such an act. You know, I don't know. I, I obviously I'm not in the White House. I'm not one of his advisors. I'm sure some of his advisors have told him about this. I'm sure he's not completely ignorant of the Insurrection Act. So I don't know what his reasoning is, but they're both to blame for sure. But uh, I just think it's unconscionable that the Democrats would allow people to suffer, cities to burn, people to die because they want to see Donald Trump thrown out of office. I mean, you know, uh, it's just it's just it's just disheartening. Anyway, um, that's all the time we have for today. I'm actually a little over, so. I will uh, talk to you guys next week. Make sure you like, subscribe, and tell your friends. And uh, be sure to listen to Tom's show. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.